It is. It's a, a scary. <laughs> was the most violent and disturbing set of sneeze I have ever heard about life, Andrew. Uh, Todd, can you maybe repeat whatever you, the last thing you said? The audio is no, no good. It. <laughs> it's, coming, it's going in. It's, it's going to be one of the outtakes, please. Oh, Let just it watch at least that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joseph Jarowski. And this week we're talking about Earl Sinclair from the TV show Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs ran for four seasons from 1991 to 1994. How are I'm you, Joseph? I'm blank for any witty banter. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, is there anything that I need to share? No, nothing's coming. <laughs> nothing's coming? We have, have snow final- we have snow finally. I feel like... This has been just the driest, mildest winter. It has actually been a record-breakingly wet winter. It's just a lot For of snow rain. Yeah, a lot of rain, not snow, though. We just have had nothing, but it snowed today. My dog would not leave me alone. She wanted. She kept wanting to go outside and run in the snow, and uh, I got really annoyed. <laughs> I told her, so I told her to go to bed. <laughs> Does that work? Did. Yes, it actually did. <laughs> she went. Good old Buffy. Yep. All right. Uh, today we are discussing, as we said, Earl Sinclair from Dinosaurs, and we're specifically talking about the season four episode. Uh, well, okay. It, it's the season four finale and also the series finale, and that was called Changing Nature. And we're also going to be talking about one of the never aired lost episodes that was called Life in the Faust, Faust Lane. Sorry. Life in the Faust Lane. Uh, both of these <laughs> Which ep- is a really great title, just it in is. and of itself. I, okay, well, uh, I'll save my Faust discussion. Hold on. Both, <laughs> both of these episodes were by Tom, uh, directed by Tom Turbovich. And I am sorry, Tom, if you're listening and I've mispronounced your last name. It is spelled T-R-B-O-V-I-T-C-H. I think you've actually done a, a fine job. Yeah, my my guess is that is a phonetic pronunciation based off how he said it or his family said it at some point when immigrating. Right, I would assume that. Uh, Changing Nature was written by Kirk Thatcher, and Life in the Faust Lane was written by Mark Drop. We need to thank listener Carl for recommending this episode to us and requesting it. Uh, I <laughs> sorry, I only sl- I'm, I'll just tell you now. I only slept for about. I don't know, maybe an hour last night uh, with, <laughs> with a sick kid. So, and then, uh, it, well, let's just go ahead. And, was this your first time ever watching dinosaurs? Yes. <laughs> I don't know if an utter lack of sleep is the best way or the worst way to be introduced to dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so listener Carl is one of our patrons on Patreon and he uh, is one of our great supporters and he requested that we do this. And if you would like to purchase a topic for us to discuss, you can also uh, do so by going to patreon.com slash protagonist and uh, give us uh, $5 a month and you can buy a topic for us to discuss. Now, listeners, if you are unfamiliar, Dinosaurs has all the conventions of a 1990s family sitcom, but with anthropomorphic dinosaurs who were created and brought to life by the Jim Henson Company instead of, you know, actors. Um, Earl Sinclair is the blue-collar patriarch of the family, and the cast of characters includes his annoying mother-in-law, his best friend at work, and an overbearing boss. So like I said, it's a parody of that classic sitcom formula from that era. Earl was voiced by Stuart Pankin, and the puppet was brought to life by Bill Beretta, Tom Fisher, Dave Goles, and Mac Wilson at various points. In Well, I think there was always... Uh, someone in the suit, and there was always someone who was doing puppeteering on the face, I'm assuming with remote control. That's, but that's only an assumption. I couldn't find out exactly how that was done. There uh, but, is, uh, there's a YouTube video that uh-huh. has, that has a behind the scenes thing. It's like two minutes long and it is amazing. I love everything Jim Henson Company has ever done. As far as like <laughs> so good, the, the moments when I'm watching it and I find myself asking, how did they do that as much as enjoying what's actually happening? Uh, that's how i felt with this yeah so uh on youtube we'll put it in in the in the show notes but it basically they have as you said a person in a giant suit and then a head that's the the face is controlled robotically by a guy uh like with his hand it looks like um 
Oh, what was the old show with the Nintendo, the glove? You know the Nintendo glove? The, was it called the Super Glove? The Power Glove. Oh, it, was power in, glove. Uh, it was in the... the... Was it the it's the Power Glove. Basically, no. it looks like a guy is controlling the face with a Power Glove. Okay. It's amazing. It, it, it's amazing. the old school NES system, Andrew, if you're... Oh, so not... No, he like this was a gl- like it was a remote control, but it was a glove that you hmm. were using that had some buttons on the wrists, so you felt like you were like in a sci-fi film. That's and really yeah. interesting. There was a there was a there was a TV show like cartoon. Oh, listeners, please write in and tell us what uh, show I'm thinking of. But, Are you uh, thinking about the one that had all the characters from various Nintendo games? Yeah, I think so. Uh, that was called Nintendo Power, I believe, and the Power Glove is the name of that controller. We'll have a picture of that in the show notes. Oh, okay, gotcha. An obscure artifact of uh, late 80s uh, video gaming culture. Yeah, whatever happened to that? That was such a cool thing. Captain N, the Game Master, maybe? Oh, that's sounding, that is sounding more likely. Let's see. Yeah, Captain N, the Game Master is what came up with my search, too. American-Canadian animated television series that aired on TV from 1989 to 1991. Yep, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, that was totally it. <laughs> uh, and he had a he had a sweet power glove. So uh, anyway, <laughs> we got kind of off the rails early. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, that's what happens when one of us is going out an hour sleep. Uh, so Todd, this is, we've already said this was your first exposure to dinosaurs, right? Yes, I remember that it was a thing that existed, but I never I had never seen it. Yeah, it was part of the TGIF block. Uh, it was at on, what point in the nineties on ABC? This was ninety one to ninety four. I'm pretty sure it was TGIF. I must have only ever seen so, it in, syndica- I used to in watch... syndication. That's I it. used to watch TGIF. Oh, so did I. Uh, so this was part of ABC's TGIF lineup. So the early TGIF, probably. Right? Yeah, I mean that, that. I'm sure that had many, a lot of things coming in and out of it. And this wasn't on. I, it was only on for four seasons. And this was also, uh, I believe, the seasons were all only 14 episodes long. So this was a shortened season. Uh, you know, the, the series itself had a smaller number of episodes than a traditional show. Um, but I remember watching this when it aired. I don't know that I saw every single episode, but I definitely watched it on Fridays when it was, when it was airing. Hmm. Um, and I specifically do remember watching the finale, which we will talk about in some depth. You did? Yeah. I remember that as a kid. Yes. I would have been 12 when it, uh, when it was on unforgettable, I guess. Yes, like I don't remember all the emotions I felt, but <laughs> but you felt emotions. I remember like distinctly this was, and when I was rewatching it, like I did have kind of a, a flood of some of those emotions coming back. Oh, right, uh, when I was watching the finale, and when we get to the finale synopsis, listeners, you will understand what I mean by all that. <laughs> all yeah, all that. <laughs> Okay, before you get into just some trivia, uh, we just want to remind you listeners that today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Over 180,000 titles await you to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or if you're going old school, your MP3 player. Here is some trivia about dinosaurs. Though the show did not go onto the air until after his death, this was a concept that Jim Henson came up with and was toying with uh, later in his life. Uh, when it finally did go on air, Brian Henson, who is Jim's son, he said that his dad dreamed up the show's basic concept about three years ago. He wanted it to be a sitcom with a pretty standard structure, with the biggest differences being that it's a family of dinosaurs and their society has this strange, toxic lifestyle. Um, in one of the episodes that we're talking about, Tim Curry did a guest voice, and any Tim Curry voice appearance is a good Tim Curry voice appearance as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Uh, apparently he did, he appeared in several episodes of this to actually do it. Like he wasn't any regular character, but he guest starred doing different voices from time to time on dinosaurs. Uh, so I did a search about the series finale. Uh, and the first thing that came up was a Buzzfeed article called dinosaurs, the most traumatizing series finale ever. More on that later. But literally there were several pages of articles, like in the Google results. Like as I clicked through the pages, it was just articles with, um, everything that had a, a a title very similar to that. Just all these articles on the internet talking about how traumatizing or disturbing or uh, controversial or um, unexpected the finale of Dinosaurs was. And apparently I read even, the, uh, the BuzzFeed one? I read the BuzzFeed one, yeah. Apparently even had a warning on its listing in the TV guide, noting that it may not be appropriate for younger viewers. Uh, the show ran for four years, but the final season only aired seven of the 14 episodes that the network had ordered. The seven other episodes were all produced, and they are called uh, sometimes the lost episodes. They were filmed. They were all in the can. Uh, but they, uh, 
if you look up the show now, like we watched this on abc.com has all of these uh, episodes listing. And so if you watch, if you were to watch this in order, episode seven of the fourth season is clearly the series finale, but then there's seven more episodes after it that uh, are in order on the streaming site. Um, and so it doesn't make any sense in the timeline, but it's because of uh, when the show was canceled, they didn't air the final seven episodes. Uh, a viral video during the U.S. presidential election, this last, uh, if these are any listeners coming back, this would be in the uh, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton uh, election. There was a viral video that spliced together footage of Donald Trump with uh, Earl Sinclair's boss, BP <laughs> Richfield. <laughs> And it gets eerily similar at times. Apparently there's an episode where VP uh, Richfield is running for some sort of public office. And one of his campaign vows is to build a wall to keep the four leggers out. Cause the four legged dinosaurs are destroying their society. <laughs> they're, they're, the, they're the good two legged dinosaurs. Um, and so we'll, we'll have that uh, uh, in the show notes with our now president elect Donald Trump being compared to an overbearing dinosaur. <laughs> Uh, let's see. The show often tackled sociopolitical issues. I, apparently there were episodes. I'm, I don't remember all of these, but some of these did ring a bell, but the, they include issues exploring drug use, racism, government and business corruption, environmentalism, censorship, body image issues, etc. Um, and all of this was done through the weird lens of strange plots and absurd dinosaur puppets. So <laughs> I was shocked at how kind of on the nose it was. Like like with its socio political commentary, and it's really <laughs> unexpected for these very brightly colored puppets. I mean, they're obviously puppets. It's not like Muppet puppets. It's kind of a different generation of Jim Henson creation. It's probably closer to Ninja Turtles. Yeah, puppets. definitely closer yeah, to the, Ninja, yeah, the yeah, Teenage absolutely. Mutant Ninja Turtles movie uh, from from the nineties, not the current CGI one, but the nineteen nineties uh, Teenage Mutant the Teenage good one Mutant Ninja. Turtles movie. Yes, the good one that we will have to talk about sometime on this show. Uh, <laughs> I really look forward to it. Those, those turtles were done by the Jim Henson Creature Shop as well, and definitely there's a closer similarity between those two uh, creations than uh, the Muppets. Before we jump into our full synopsis, we want to remind you to take advantage of great deals from Amazon by going to protagonistpodcast.com slash deals or by making any purchases through protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. And just a reminder, it looks exactly like regular Amazon, but we get a little kickback from any of your purchases, and it doesn't cost you anything more. So please support the show. All right. Joseph, I, are you ready? I am ready, and I'm going to do these two kind of out of order. I'm going to do one of the Lost episodes first and then the series finale for the synopses. So Life in the Faust Lane. Uh, the Sinclair family finishes up a game of Monotony. This is their board, ga- board game that they're playing. <laughs> Uh, and very unexpectedly, Earl Sinclair says that he needs a family hug before everyone goes to bed because he is actually perfectly content in this moment. What more could anyone want? After everyone goes to bed, he turns on the TV while he's going to put the game away. And on the TV, he sees a show called The Rich Ones. And then he changes the channel to a show called Lifestyles of Those We Envy. Suddenly, <laughs> Earl realizes that he is not happy. There's a gaping void in his life that can never be filled. <laughs> then... Uh, the TV goes to a commercial. It's kind of an infomercial about a special handcrafted mug from the Fernhill Company that is only available to a select few whose credit qualifies for the exclusive ranks of mug enthusiasts. When Earl says he'd sell his soul for that mug, a miniature devil dinosaur appears on the game board. <laughs> this is uh, Tim Curry's guest voice role. <laughs> That's so the devil good. dinosaur. <laughs> Earl then sells his soul for this mug, which I should note is in the shape of the head of a salty sea captain with a corncob pipe and squinty eyes. It's a dinosaur. It's a dinosaur. So, but imagine, like, if you've ever seen, like, a Darth Vader mug where it's, you know, it's the head of Darth Vader just at the top. It's that, but it's a dinosaur sea captain. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So, Andrew, you've never seen this. Uh, I've seen dinosaurs, but I did not watch these episodes. Okay. (laughs) You're in for a treat. (laughs) I'm, I'm looking forward to this. So this is in like the pre-credits. Yes, yeah, that was all like pre pre-title. Uh, the sequence. dinosaur appearing was right. It went from there to the opening credit sequence. Okay, uh, <laughs> I love the design on this mug, though. It is just glorious design work. <laughs> uh, the next day at work, he is showing off his mug to his coworkers when his boss BP Richfield calls him into his office and asks, "Yes, who said you could own one of those mugs?" <laughs> And then after Richfield admits that there's no legal way he can prevent Earl from owning his collectible mug, Richfield reveals that he owns eight Fernhill mugs. And if I Earl love the is... skull one. <laughs> yes. I think the skull, the skull mug is my favorite. 
Uh, I didn't look at all of those closely. I should have to, to really take in the eight designed Fernhill <laughs> mugs. Uh, but if Earl is now a mug owner, he needs to act like it. He needs to leave his mugless friends behind and join the Mug Society, which is only a $1,200 a year membership. And he also needs to start subscribing to Mugazine for $200 a year so he knows what to talk about <laughs> when he comes to the Mug Society meetings. <laughs> Earl buys a display case for his mug. Uh, but when he brings the display case into the house, he discovers that his wife, Fran, lent the mug to Earl's friend, Roy, so that Roy could impress a date. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's really hard to get that sentence out without <laughs> cracking up. Uh, Earl then begins to rant about how Roy is unworthy of such a mug. When what Roy walks in, and he's returning the mug, but he overhears Earl's rant. Roy is offended and he leaves. Uh, that night, Earl is watching the Mug News Network, and he sees a report about mugs being stolen. So Earl hires a security guard and installs a very intense security system. <laughs> Fran confronts Earl about their finances, because this turns out to be a drain on their finances. And Earl proudly shows off his new security system and says that it is more important than food. Ravi and Charlene, who are their teenage kids, uh, they run in panic that their belongings are missing, and Earl shows them that he has a yard sale going on. Everyone is upset, and Earl says that sacrifices have to be made if they want to stay a Fernhill Mug family. Baby overhears this, and he's angry at the mug. That night, Baby drugs the security guard <laughs> and tries to pull off a heist using powder to reveal lasers, dropping down from the ceiling to hover over the mug's display case, <laughs> using a glass cutter with a plunger on it. Everything you'd expect from a heist scene. It's a total Mission Impossible thing. It's amazing. Uh, but when Baby touches the mug, alarms go off and a cage falls over Baby. Earl is furious at Baby and wants him thrown in jail. Fran is furious at Earl and takes the Baby and other children and leaves. Uh, in a, the morning, the security guard says he has to go home to his family. He shows Earl pictures of his family. And Earl says in his wallet, he has a picture of his mug. The security guard mutters, loser, as he leaves. It's <laughs> uh, a bit of back talk from employee so, wait, to employee. You now. said... In the morning, it, it might be a couple. It might be a couple days later, right? I, yeah, it's. I think it's several days later. It can't be more than seven, as we'll see in a moment. Well, but when when does the calendar tick off the days? Uh, there's a, there's a sequence where the calendar ticks off the must, days. It, it, like it, Fifteen it, days. It can't be. I was confused days. about this. I know this. This is what I was confused about. Okay. Well, I don't remember. I, I must not have been paying enough attention to see how many days ticked off the calendar. <laughs> anyway. anyway. Uh, the devil Sometimes shows passes. up. Yes. The devil shows up and asks Earl if he's ready to go since he has nothing to live for now. So like, you sold me your soul. <laughs> your life is sad. Why don't we just go ahead and head out? Um, Earl is about to go with the devil, but he sees that the mug came with a manufacturer's guarantee saying that the mug can be returned within several seven days if the owner is not completely satisfied. The devil says, that seems binding. So he undoes everything and Earl returns to the moment he had turned on the TV and saw lifestyles of those we envy. So Earl makes a different choice and he turns off the TV and goes to bed with his wife. All right. Uh, Changing Nature, the series finale of Dinosaurs, which I will remind you was on TGIF and was ostensibly a children's show. All the dinosaurs are excited for the annual arrival of the bunch beetles who come back every year and eat the rapidly growing cider poppy plant. But the bunch beetles do not show up this year and nobody can figure out why. Eventually, one lone bunch beetle lands at the Sinclair house and Charlene, the teenage daughter, talks with him. He says... He needs to get to their mating ground, which is a nearby swamp. Charlene takes him there, but they discover a wax fruit factory has been built over the swamp. The beach, uh, the bunch beetles are now essentially extinct. This throws off the entire ecosystem, and the cider poppy plant grows like crazy. Concerned with the bad PR caused by their company's factory, um, causing the inconvenience of these overgrowing plants, BP Richfield and Earl hatch a plan to take care of this new issue. They spray the continent of Pangaea with a defoliant. That is their euphemism for a plant killer. This works, but it also destroys all plant life on the entire continent. Richfield then hatches a scheme to take care of this newly arisen problem. He says, and this is great logic, plants need rain. Rain comes from clouds. So <laughs> let's drop bombs into all the volcanoes <laughs> in the world. So they belch forth black sooty clouds that will undoubtedly bring back the rain. Of course, the volcanoes do shoot out clouds, but rather than rain, it brings about a colossal drop in temperature. 
BP Richfield is ecstatic, saying that this is the company's best third quarter ever, as every dinosaur is rushing to their stores to buy food and heaters. Earl points out that they may have brought on the end of all life. <laughs> and Richfield says, that's a fourth quarter problem. Right now, I'm only worried about how to count all my money. Earl apologizes <laughs> to his family for, you know, ending life as they know it. He says it's so easy to take nature for granted because it's always there, but technology is so bright and shiny and new and distracting. Uh, because he did not take good care of the world, there isn't going to be much of, uh, much of a world for his children. Baby asks what's going to happen, and they all say they're going to be together as a family till the end, as it fades out on snow falling on the Sinclair house. The end of dinosaurs. There's also one tag of a newscaster signing off and saying goodbye. Yeah, it's this Walter <laughs> Cronkite kind of yeah. touching. Yeah, it's a spoof. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Of uh, the classic. Oh. But yeah, it's, it's a pretty dark end for uh, a kid's show. You still there, Andrew? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm confused. <laughs> I I had to... So, as I mentioned earlier, I'm running on very little sleep right now. And I I thought that I fell asleep at the end of this and missed the part where everything gets put back together. And then it doesn't I seem like it does. That I, that I didn't miss it. Uh, it just ends. I yeah. was stunned. Uh, like I said, this show did tackle a lot of issues. And I guess when they were told they were canceled, they decided, all right, well, we're going out big. <laughs> if you want to uh, to cancel this show, we're going to tackle uh, some pretty heady issues. And we're going to end on one of the biggest downers in the history of television. Like I said, I was 12 when this aired. And I remember watching it. And I don't, like, I wouldn't say I was traumatized. But I definitely remember feeling sad. <laughs> like, I liked these characters of these dinosaurs. And it ends on basically a death sentence. Uh, for the family that kids have been watching for four years. I mean, it is it is about dinosaurs, and so, <laughs> we know that things did yours. not well things did not end well for the dinosaurs. Yes, the end uh, of all dinosaurs is extinction. I'm comfortable saying that. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> it, but uh, uh, for this show, it's. I mean, it was stunning. I, I, I haven't I haven't seen it all. I've only seen two episodes, and even still, I'm like sort of speechless at the end of uh, how this ended. All right, so let's talk some about uh, Faust Lane, and then we'll switch gears and and talk about uh, this finale. I think. Okay. So, um, listener Carl, he asked us to do dinosaurs. We didn't have any specific episodes we wanted. I knew we were probably going to do the series finale because I remembered it from when I was a kid. But I looked up a chart of like uh, user ratings of the most popular episodes uh, based on IMDb, uh, just depending on how many people have gone in and ranked individual episodes. Life in the Foul Lane was not one of the most popular, but as I was skimming the titles, I saw that and I said, we're doing that one because I am a sucker for Faust stories. I love, <laughs> sure. I love the Faustian myth. I love Marlowe's, uh, Kit Marlowe's play, uh, Dr. Faustus, which is kind of the template for a lot of our Dr. Faust stories. I love films like, um, oh, all of a sudden I blanked on it. What's the one? Uh, black and white. Uh, devil and Daniel Webster. That's the one. Devil and Daniel Webster. Uh, these stories where people are making deals with the devils. I thought you were about to talk about the Brendan Fraser vehicle, uh, Bedazzled. I'm oh, or Bedazzled. Oh, oh, wait, hold on. That's a vague memory. Is <laughs> is is surging forth? <laughs> he makes a deal with the devil, right? Uh, I, yeah, uh, but it was a female devil. Yes. Okay. I don't. I've never saw it, but I, a vague memory of those commercials did. <laughs> I, just, don't, I don't think I watched it either. But. <laughs> Can't say I love that one, but I'm going to guess that none of us were allowed to watch that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just something about the Faust myth is always uh, fascinating to me. And the turn that this one took with that absurd mug. (laughs) So, so delightful to me as I'm like, what is he going to sell his soul for? (laughs) It was the mug of a sea captain's head. Uh, But then that it wasn't uh, treated as though that that was an absurd decision because it turns out that that mug was really a status symbol in the dinosaur world. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Because you could have seen, I'm sure I would imagine Simpsons has done an episode where someone sold their soul to the devil and it was for something stupid. And that was it like that, you know, it was something stupid. Uh, But I love the fact that the mug became like, was legitimately something that was prized and was, um, uh, you know, a symbol of uh, wealth and status in the dinosaur community. Yes. I So there there's something just really delightful in the way that the the script is written of this where um it's 
it's taken obviously to an absurd level, but the things that he's saying are the kinds of things that the kind of absurd things that go through. I think everybody's head at some point. <laughs> We're like, I I really am not happy, and I really do need that thing, and uh, just the 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 kind of straightforward, uh, like I don't know. I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for here, but he just says, like, there's no filter in his brain. He just says exactly what he's thinking. And it sounds absurd. And then there's a there's a part in the back of your mind that goes, oh, I think I've probably had these same thoughts before about about other things. About objects. Uh, or, I mean, the way he talks about his family and everything. Uh, and I love that the game that he's playing at the beginning, before he decides that he's unhappy, is called Monotony. Yes. Uh, instead of Monopoly. Which is all about getting stuff. Right, right. But it's all about getting stuff. But also I think there's something about um, happiness that that becomes kind of like your standard place in life. Like it starts to feel like you need to change it, even though really if you were to step outside and look back, you know, look down on yourself, you'd say that's a happy, like this This might feel monotonous, but it's a good monotony. <laughs> like, yeah. like family life, I mean, obviously there's a huge divorce rate uh, in, in our country and, uh, you know, other things that say that some people made choices that they thought were going to make them happy, but at a certain point they decide, no, you know, either through monotony or other things, they decide I'm not happy anymore. And I need to do something to change it. In Earl's case, he sells a soul for a mug. <laughs> other people went through midlife crises, may get object, you know, go buy cars or whatever it may be. Or obviously, like I said, there's a, you know, a huge divorce rate in the country that say people try and change what starts to feel monotonous. That is, that is a really interesting take on this because I, I think I would have interpreted that almost the exact opposite <laughs> in that, um, I mean, monotony is, I mean, I, I would, I would consider the monotony, the, the, like the rat race of just trying to get more and more and more. I don't know. I'm reminded of episode two of our podcast when we talked about Kitty Pride in, uh, Astonishing X-Men. And she says, um, she says, everything is so fragile. There's so much conflict, so much pain. You keep waiting for the dust to settle, and then you realize it. The dust is your life going on. If happy comes along, that weird, unbearable delight that's actual happy, I think you have to grab it while you can. You take that. You take what you can get because it's here and then gone. So, so anyway, I, I, I guess it's it's interesting to think about like what is what is the monotony? Is it the rat race of trying to get more and more and more, or is monotony life? I don't know. Maybe maybe my life is just too crazy right now to think that it's actual monotony. <laughs> monotony, but like, but, but like for um, it feels monotonous. <laughs> well, I was gonna say for like a, a sitcom in which status quo is god, and you know it always resets to the same core group of characters. Which in the case of dinosaurs or an animated show, like they don't even change costume or age. You know, yeah. Earl's life is monotonous. Like his teenage kids are always teenagers. Baby's always a baby. Yeah, uh, his wife always looks the exact same, and viewers until the series finale can assume that everything's gonna like you said you're re- waiting for the reset at the end. Yes, um, and this episode uh, because it gives us this kind of alternate timeline that Br- uh, Earl briefly explores uh, after making a deal with the devil. Like we start with the monotony of the family all together, and Earl saying, "You know what? This is a, a legitimately happy moment in my life." Uh, but then we explore like his <laughs> once he's told <laughs> by watching lifestyles of those we envy that there's a gaping void in his life uh, and <laughs> it's it's objects, uh, you know, and things that he doesn't have <laughs> that, uh, you know, he, he goes down this this tangent of exploring this other life where he's going to value this mug more than his family. That um, life ends in what I would consider true monotony, which is him alone, al- sitting alone by himself, hugging a mug. <laughs> I've never heard a more perfect description of monotony. <laughs> the man alone with his prized mug in the morning <laughs> as he waves goodbye to a security guard. <laughs> yeah, like day after day. <laughs> um, it's it's kind of an amazing commentary on uh, materialism and happiness that, yeah. uh, that I think ties in really well with other conversations we've had about happiness when we talked about Rudy or when we talked about White Christmas, uh, those are two great conversations that come to mind uh, about happiness. Um, I also think it's interesting that last week we were talking about The Giver, and I said I struggled sometimes with 
like the symbolism was really interesting and the themes were really interesting, but the story wasn't really doing it for me. And I, th- I thought maybe some of it might've been a tonal issue. I love the absurd tone of this one. And it, like, it's a stupid symbol, <laughs> the mug. Um, yes. But for me, this works like all, all of it worked on this jovially, jovially um, laughably out there premise that they used uh, in this like hyper uh, parodic world that they built for dinosaurs it's parodying um you know tropes of sitcoms it's parodying uh our life um and i think it's revealing what uh brian henson said was part of jim henson's uh you know premise like this there is a toxic reality (laughs) that is kind of underlying all the absurdity of these dinosaurs Uh uh-huh um and i think that's a toxic reality that we you know that we're living in but we get to laugh at it because of these weird puppets that are waddling around (laughs) Yeah. So I have a question about um, about arguments and the way that arguments are are made here. Um, there's not a lot of subtlety. No, <laughs> no. In this episode or in the other one. I mean, I, I don't know that it's it's like better or worse, but it, it kind of is the way that it is, and I, I think we'll see this more in the next episode. But um, uh, s- sometimes when an argument is is painted in such clear stark tones it can if done well uh have the effect of just making you realize wow um that's a really good argument (laughs) Uh, but it can also i think be dangerous if that's the only uh way that you're that you're getting those Mm -hmm. or that you're engaging those topics yeah um and it's it's easy to fall into kind of living in an echo chamber in which every every argument is so clear that how could you possibly disagree with this? Right. And um, I think for me, some of what makes this work is, again, the issue of tone. Um, so like when it's presented with great solemnity that this is the way to think and, you know, the only argument to have and you know, the music and the camera work and the editing all make a great fanfare of like, here is the lesson, you know, uh, that like, I, I would imagine turns off a lot of viewers. It can turn me off. Certainly. Uh, mm-hmm. this has this, like I said, this kind of parodic tone about it. Like it's parodying, uh, the Faustian myth and it's still making the same argument that you see in classic Faust stories when a man sells his soul to the devil for usually material gain or wealth or power, any of those things. Um, and then realizes that that is that, you know, a counterfeit to happiness. Like we get all of those, but it's done in this, this tone that makes those lessons more palatable than it. Like I said, if it had been done with great solemnity. I think also it's interesting to think about Faust and I mean, like Goethe's Faust is, it's not he's not looking for wealth or money but but like true happiness and uh if i remember right man it's been a very long time have you read have you read goethe's faust i have not read goethe's faust and this is so, after i've claimed to be a great faust lover <laughs> so if i remember it correctly he so he sells his soul to to the devil and it's because he he's trying to find like this the secret of of life and happiness, and he kind of searches everywhere and finds nothing. And at the very end, the devil's ready to come and take him down, drag his soul down to hell. And then an angel comes and scoops him up and takes him into heaven and says, "Anybody that, that this sincerely uh, was trying uh, deserves to get it in the end." And so they sc- scoop him up and take him into heaven. That is uh, the opposite of most Faust. Yeah, that doesn't moral. strike me as the. <laughs> so that's when how. Was that uh, one from? When, 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 when was that one? Get this Faust. Uh, let's see. It's. Uh... And I'm not sure I like that <laughs> ending. Uh, 1770s. Right. It's part two. Oh, okay. It's how part. It's how part two ends. I'm quite certain. First in print in 1790. Remembering, yeah. Oh, he finished writing part two in 1831. 
Uh, it says, so this is, I'm looking at Wikipedia. It says he finished writing Faust part two in 1831. In contrast to Faust part one, the focus here is no longer on the soul of Faust, which has been sold to the devil, but rather on the social phenomena such as psychology, history, and politics, in addition to mystical and philosophical topics. The second part formed the principal occupation of Goethe's last years, appearing only posthumously in 1832. So the quote from that part two is, he who strives on and lives to strive can earn redemption still. So it's about, it's, it's like, a, it's like the end of um, uh, A Man for All Seasons when uh, Thomas More is being executed and he tells the executioner, don't worry, uh, you're sending me to God. And the executioner says, are you really sure that that's where you're headed? And he says, yes, I actually, I am because God would not deny uh, his presence to somebody who so desperately wants to be there. And so... Um, so anyway, in that story, it's not about, it's not about like, I need this thing, this, this one material object. It's, I am really, truly, sincerely seeking for happiness. And I think there's, there's a pretty significant difference in this story, at least (laughs) in which he has happiness. And then he says, what I really need is a thing. A mug, Fern Hill mug. Um, A Fern Hill mug. Yeah. (laughs) Which did look fantastic if that prop existed like i could order <laughs> the fernhill mug from dinosaurs you probably can <laughs> i doubt that's from one of the lost episodes todd it never even aired <laughs> during the regular run of dinosaurs <laughs> it's worth looking it up right <laughs> i think producer uh... andrew's looking into that for us right now <laughs> uh it doesn't it doesn't jump right to the top of the page on amazon so it probably doesn't exist. <laughs> All right. Uh, should we talk some about the, again, what many headlines and news and internet articles have called one of the most traumatic series finales of all time. Sure. Well, I mean, this is another one where the moral is not subtle. <laughs> There's, yeah. uh, you know, a very clear, uh, you know, environmental message that, that is present in what was it called? Uh, changing nature. Yes. Good puns in both both titles, like just double <laughs> meanings. In, I, I yeah. guess the, the first is more of a pun. This one's more of a double meaning. But um, the uh, something that that stood out to me <laughs> was well, okay. I love the fact that they they destroyed nature to build a wax fruit factory again. Right. Bit on the nose, but it's fun. <laughs> and as one of the workers at the wax fruit factory says, we have to have this factory because wax fruit does not grow on trees. <laughs> That is one of the greatest lines. <laughs> yes. Um, but like there's, there are a few different motivations for these increasingly poor decisions that get made that we see. Mm-hmm. And I think they're all actual uh, solid motivations for poor decisions that get made in our lives today. So there's um, straight up greed, right? They're, they're building a factory to sell something that's kind of pointless, but they know right. enough people will buy it. They can make money. And later on, BP Richfield is very excited about the run on food and heaters <laughs> that the ice age is causing. What's uh, the name of his company? We say so. Is that? Yeah. Is the, it, we say so corporation, the we say so corporation, <laughs> <laughs> which seems to like, like in uh, many of uh, classic cartoons or sitcoms, like this corporation just does everything in the dinosaur world. Um, yeah. But so there's greed and then there's, um, you know, the PR cover up, like the, the guilt that they're trying to hide uh-huh. <laughs> that, uh, that pushes them, uh, you know, to go, uh, a little bit further. Uh, and, and so, so we've had greed, we've had bad PR L and there was one other I was thinking of earlier, but now it's not coming to me. What else? The volcanoes. Uh, oh, and yeah, like, uh, like legitimately, legitimately trying to solve a problem, but but, but being completely misguided (laughs) Yeah, and, and ignoring science, (laughs) Mm uh, as, as you do this. Um, and I think all of those have led to some pretty poor decisions in the history of humans. (laughs) Yeah. Um, none at the level that we see for the dinosaurs. Uh, but it's just interesting to me that like you, if you're writing an episode where like we want the dinosaurs to cause an ice age, like I don't know how you go from point A to B of them having a cookout, which is where it starts. I think it's where it is. Uh, to to the family all huddled together and saying we're going to be a family till the end, just snow falls, and you know this is the extinction of dinosaurs. It's interesting that it both starts and ends with a, a family gathering, mm-hmm. but under under 
completely different circumstances. And this really is, this show it really is a celebration of family and family life in, uh, I, I think it's, it's probably the strongest, uh, across these two episodes, it's the strongest message. Uh, oh, that, that unites these, right. Yeah, that, that unites both of them is, is that it's a celebration of family and family life and... And overcoming, you know, family members can make bad decisions, but you're still family. Yeah, and um, kind of this sim- that simple happiness that comes from that. It's uh, like I said earlier. It's it's exactly what we talked about when we discussed uh, White Christmas. That this this really is where happiness comes from. <laughs> it comes from being close to people you love. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and well, you having can try to get uh, it. You can try to get it in a whole bunch of other ways, and it just it's not going to work out in the long run for you. Mm-hmm. And it's, I'm laughing because my humanities students are once again starting a new semester in which I'm asking them what they think is the secret of happiness. And they're all telling me in, in, their, in their best, like, what they think should be a college voice saying, it's whatever you want, man. <laughs> <laughs> happiness is just whatever. Like, whatever makes you happy. If, you, if money makes you happy, then money's happiness. If... You know, power makes you happy, then power is happiness. Like, just whatever. Whatever makes you happy is happiness. Just getting uh, whatever you want. Well, and th- <laughs> that, that actually like serves as a good segue for something I wanted to ask about. Because the last shot that we have of B.P. Richfield, um, Earl's overbearing boss, is him laughing happily over piles of money on his desk mm-hmm. and saying that the only problem he has is what is he going to do with all this money. And the last shot that we have of the Sinclair family uh, is them very like solemnly uh, like hugging together and saying, we don't know what's going to come next, but we're together till the end. Like we're family till the end. Um, And I think they're like, even children know that BP Richfield isn't really happy. (laughs) Like there's like the way it's played so absurdly um, and like a, a cackling cartoon villain, you know, that that's not happiness. And that's clearly not what the, you know, the episodes trying to show, but the sad scene of the family at the end like whether you want to call it traumatic or uh, troubling or whatever it is, but there's something sweet about that family hugging together. It's that it's what we uh, have, have called in other episodes, like emotionally rich, right? Like there's, there's emotional depth and richness to what they have that Richfield doesn't have. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that we, we recognize that. And like you said, like I think even children can, can recognize that and 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 so i I don't know like uh, i don't i this idea of um monotony and maybe you and i are just interpreting that word in in different ways but to me that's why i i I think i kind of resist that word monotony to this to describe happiness because emotionally it's it's not emotionally monotonous it's emotionally it's rich and it has lots of ups and downs Mm -hmm. even as Maybe the way that you're interpreting it, it is monotonous in that in your your actions, it's like you wake up, you get the kids to school, you go to work, you come home, you eat some dinner, you know, like the, in, as far as the actions that we do, I think it is pretty monotonous, as you said, but I think emotionally it's not at all because you have highs and lows and your kids are mad and then they're happy and then you're frustrated with your spouse and then you're not. And, uh, and I think that's what to me makes life like, like be- beautiful is that emotional richness. And sometimes it's happy and sometimes it's sad. And sometimes you just huddle together <laughs> and hope for the best in really dark times. But All right, producer not- Andrew wants to jump in with something here. I, I have it. an update on the mug hunt. <laughs> <laughs> Did you find one? I did not. So it, oh! like, maybe it's only accessible in some props vault, right? Potentially, like, but that, like, that's going to be one of my lifelong journeys is to get into the props vault that has the Fernfield mugs, the Fernfield mug. <laughs> mint mug, uh, especially Captain Willie. <laughs> yes, that was the name of this. But I did find on a website called Spredge, the ultimate guide to dinosaur coffee mugs from April. This post is from April. 2013 and it is 
literally a guide to dinosaur themed mugs like oh that you can, from this TV show that you can purchase. So you've got like the party palooza three inch dinosaur mugs for a dollar. But, but not from this TV show. But no, like no, no like, actual dinosaurs, like, like mugs you could get and, and drink your drinks out of. This is one of those times and, where I say the internet is wonderful. Cause if you have a passion, yes, you will be able to find and someone else who has, shares that passion. It has at the bottom of the entire listing, the, Fernhill Mint Cat'n Willy mug. And it, it, it's got a oh, picture from the mug. Yeah. And it says, because it, under each one, it said, you know, dollar sign, here's what it costs you. Dollar sign, your soul. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and then it goes on and it's got like a, a, a couple paragraphs and it says, uh, so remember dinosaur mug enthusiasts. Even if you don't have the dinosaur mug of your dreams, you should perhaps take a lesson from Earl Sinclair. Dinosaur mugs aren't worth selling your soul over. <laughs> Wise words. <laughs> profound. And, but it did, it did have a listing for a mug I am strongly, strongly considering purchasing uh, for, for <laughs> Joseph. Uh, it's called the Fitz and Floyd Dinosaur 1993 mug. Uh, and it's available on eBay for 20 bucks. I'm going to show it to you, Joseph. I want your honest reaction okay, I'm to, the, to the image of this mug. I'm, and how badly do you want to drink your drink out of this? All right. Oh, my goodness. That is that is something to behold. Uh, <laughs> listeners, I'm going to try and describe this. The handle of the mug is the long neck of, of a, a brontosaurus. Or brachiosaurus. Brachiosaurus. I, I, I never know which one got phased out. Uh, the cup is disturbing on many it's, levels it's the body <laughs> it's, it's the body but it also has molded plant life grow it seems to be growing out of warts on the dinosaur i don't think I that's think, what's intended no, i think but it's, i think it's, I think it's just supposed flower to be the, 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 yeah the dinosaur is supposed to be curled up around a flower and some ferns but it looks like those are growing out of warts on the the dinosaur's back <laughs> wow yeah it's, and it's pink the dinosaur is a pink dinosaur i'm, I'm gonna uh get this into a, a message so that uh, I, i'm gonna text it to todd so that he can <laughs> see it but it's uh it's only 20 bucks on ebay right now i would and say I... 20 dollars too much <laughs> but i'm so strongly considering getting it for you so I... you can put it on a desk somewhere oh, and keep some pens in it i would display that yes so proudly yes it's it's currently available so you you could have it <laughs> listeners if you want to be the uh the supporting patron that purchases this mug just do a one-time donation of twenty dollars and and note that that's what it's for. Wow! So, are you going to send me that link? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm All right, well, just let's wait here. We'll give it a moment for Andrew. You can edit this out, but we'll get the link to Todd, and we'll get Todd's. Uh, uh, here it goes into the Slack. All right, all right, Todd. You should be getting the image soon. Let us know what your reaction is. Uh, it's. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that is amazing. That is not at all what I expected. It's oh, beautiful. No, it's, it's like it is artistically crafted. I oh, like it. Todd, uh, paint a word picture for the listeners. I tried. Uh, now there is only one available on eBay at this time. So if we want it, now's the time to get <laughs> it. Like dinosaur. Wow, this is the kind of mug that could turn me into a dinosaur mug enthusiast. For me, it's only the Fern Hill. Only the yeah, <laughs> only the Captain Willie Fern. It's now, amazing. Remember, neither neither the Flints and Floyd nor the the Captain Willie is worth your soul. <laughs> it's the, the, really the one that I want is the is the Day of the Dead Skull Fern Hill mug that Richfield has in his office. That's the one that I want. I got to go back and look at that because uh, he opens a it's a. <laughs> He presses a button on his desk, and part of the wall slides back to reveal his display of Fernfield mugs that he keeps in his office. <laughs> behind a secret display. Yes, though. behind a secret display. <laughs> so I gotta go back and look more closely at those mugs. All right, before we wrap up, uh, we said we're talking about Earl from Dinosaurs, so we should probably take a little time to talk about Earl himself. What do you make of this uh, patriarch of the Sinclair clan, Todd? He's kind of reminds me of a lot of male protagonists in these kinds of shows. Yes. Very <laughs> so he's, much so. He's very Homer Simpson. Or um, Fred Flintstone. Yeah, Fred Flintstone. Or maybe, even... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say Raymond, and everybody loves Raymond. That was the next name to come out of my mouth. <laughs> I think, um, what was Tim Allen's character in Home Improvement? Was it Tim something? Oh, uh, Tim the Toolman Taylor. Tim, Tim Taylor, yeah. yeah. Like, like this um, kind of... 
well-meaning, but I mean, idiotic <laughs> character. Yeah. It's, it's, if, so I, I talk about gender in media sometimes with my, in my classes and we, we spend a day or two talking about uh, issues of portrayals of women. And my students always have a lot to say about portrayals of women. And then I say, well, what are some of the stereotypes men face? And there's always like moments of silence. And then usually eventually someone says, well, aren't there a lot of dumb men? Yeah, the, the bumbling father in sitcoms. Yeah. Right. And this is uh, like uh, pushed even further to caricature level, you know, version of what was present and has been present for decades, I think, in sitcoms. I mean, you can go back even to Honeymooners and you find, um, you know, the similar similar character types to, to what Earl Sinclair is. So it's very much part of the fabric of the family sitcom. Uh, you don't always see it, but it's not uncommon to come across, uh, like I said, kind of the, the bumbling idiotic, uh, father figure. Yeah. I was going to ask you in, in, uh, TV history. So do your sense is that this has always kind of been a thing because my sense has always been that it hasn't always been a thing and that these kind of bumbling idiotic dads, are more a reaction to things like leave it to beaver or well, there's my father, three sons. father knows best father but, knows best so so the, you've you've seen even, uh, Flintstones, even right the brady, I mean, this... the brady bunch mm-hmm. the dad and the brady bunch is pretty put together and he always has words of wisdom for his kids and he's not he's not treated lightly like uh like these other characters that we're talking about here Right, but I mean, would you agree that Earl feels a lot like Fred Flintstone from oh, yeah, Flintstones? Absolutely. And that's yeah. that's sixties, right? And maybe even late fifties. The Honeymooners uh, often Flintstones, and I think the creators of it said, like, uh, you know, Flintstones was inspired by uh, Honeymooners, and Honeymooners is mid fifties. So okay. I, I don't, I think it became like the de facto status for a lot of sitcoms in the nineties, uh, mm-hmm. particularly to have that. So it became uh, more prominent than the more assured and competent father figures from, like you said, leave it to Beaver, Father's Knows Best, uh, those other ones. But I think going back to the 50s, we've had some versions of this. It just became more common than the other versions of father figures in the 90s. I think it can be funny. I mean, this this show is legitimately funny. I was laughing watching it. Um, But there is, (laughs) inside of me, there is always, when I see these men portrayed in this way it it kind of makes me sad and it's like not the kind of gender equality that i would hope for you know? right. <laughs> Whereas like, the, the, you know we could be demeaned in different but equal ways <laughs> right it's like uh i saw an article the other day that was about um it was about women and the treatment of women and beauty and um objectification of women and like it was saying objectifying larger women is not empowering to women (laughs) like to see, you know, to see, uh, some plus sized woman objectified in a, in a bathing suit or not a bathing suit is, is not, it's not empowering to women. Uh, it's just more objectification in, in other ways. And I feel like demeaning men in ways in which you have demeaned women in the past is not empowering to women. It's just, demeaning <laughs> right because um and, in those other sitcoms that we mentioned oftentimes the mom would be at home and have a problem and father would come in and solve all the problems because the father right. was the more competent and the wiser of the pair and in these 90s style sitcoms often the husband would cause a problem and the wife would come in and be the you know the control figure that would you know get control of the kids again and you know fix the problems that had been created by the husband modern family is another of these right I think they, I think modern family maybe um, subverts that because there are things that all the fathers in that are legitimately very good at. They just, mm-hmm. I, I think the humor comes when they try to reach beyond their actual spheres of control. Okay. I'll, like, I'll, I'll, I'll buy that. Like Phil is a very good realtor. Like he, he does his job well. Except when he, except, except when, when he, he does it, and then they bring comedy into it. it. But like, but you know, all the all the houses they don't show him screwing up. <laughs> you know, yeah. he seems to he seems yeah. to be doing his job well, and people like him, and he's successful. Yeah, I mean, but the I nature they... of sitcoms is that you have to get uh, tension coming from some source. Uh, I think the trouble comes when it's always the same source, and it becomes kind of stereotypical of 
uh, you know, either the father figure is always the one causing the trouble or the mother is incapable of solving the problems. That's when it gets in trouble. Not when periodically these things happen to these characters. Cause yeah, I mean the nature of telling a half hour story, you've got to have some inciting incident that's going to be coming from the actions of some character. When you yeah. have a good balance of everybody having episodes where they're the screw up and, and episodes where they're the fixer, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a good balance. Yeah. I think, um, I think it's one of the reasons why the, the Faust, uh, episode works so well is because of the initial scene in which he says i am truly happy and then like let's all have a hug and uh, this is great and the and the brother is it like the brother-in-law or something the uncle oh roy That's friend, friend roy. yeah and he says i feel like i'm part of the family and <laughs> and uh i think if i mean it, it works it's surprising to us to see Earl like that because, in general, I'm guessing he's not like that. He's probably, you know, uh, bitter and doesn't express his affection, his feelings very much because that's the the caricature that he's, you know, the uh, you know the the type that he's playing. Well, the very first, I did watch the pilot episode, and it's. Um, have you seen the pilot? Not. Do you remember it? Not for years. So it's uh, Earl talking to Baby and baby saying how did i get here and he says well so he goes back in time it's a flashback it's all told in flashback and uh you meet all the characters but but baby isn't there and earl is just totally miserable he doesn't like his life he actually leaves his wife and goes out into the forest because he wants to live like the wild dinosaurs (laughs) (laughs) because maybe because maybe this whole civilization thing was a bad idea and (laughs) And he would be happy. Yeah, yeah. So he's in his first time trying to find something else. Right. So he goes out into the forest, and um, and he's terrified by the little creatures that he usually eats. (laughs) There are some really funny bits about um, uh, like eating eating your the 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 animals are alive. (laughs) They eat, and so they have to have like special cages and things. One of them gets out and runs in the forest, and then and then Earl finds him, and they have this heart to heart in the. In the thing, Earl can't bring himself to eat the food that's that's like in the wild. And then he gets home and he's like, well, you know, let's just move on to the next phase of our life. Our kids are old. They're going to be out of the house soon. And then his wife says, surprise. And then there's a, the, the egg. And so <laughs> he didn't want he didn't want baby. And uh, and then he gets he gets baby. And so so the, I mean, the, the show starts with the premise that this guy is not happy He's not entirely happy with his family life, and he and he doesn't want for sure to have a, a baby at this stage in his life. And so I'm uh, I I guess I would guess that if we were to watch more episodes, we would see the same kinds of of themes uh, mm-hmm. emerge. Yeah, I, I'm sure. Uh, and I, I do remember. I don't think it came out much in these these episodes, but at least in the early years, Baby always called Earl not the mama, not the mama. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Earl was constantly trying to get him to call him daddy. I don't remember if he ever got referred to in either of these episodes, but I do remember from a kid, like always laughing at them. Not the mama. The, the, the baby heist. That <laughs> is TV gold. I mean, that's amazing with, he's got the, he's got the black knit cap and a black sweater. <laughs> and then and he's he, dangling down from the ceiling. He pulls out the grappling hook, like, <laughs> like harpoon thing and shoots it into the ceiling. And then winds himself up. It is. It's totally elaborate. It. This must have been. When. When did the Mission Impossible movie come out? It was after. It was, was it after, after this, or yeah. It, that would have been in the like ninety seven range. Yeah, mid mid to late nineties. Yeah. So, but it, it looks like a. a it looks like, like a parody of that. Yeah, but little did we know, Tom Cruise was a fan of dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, who knew. Let's see. Uh, well, yeah, when you described it, I was like, oh, they must be parodying Mission Impossible. But if they pre-parody. <laughs> even, to the, even to the point where it, he's got like the the trapeze thing and he hangs down from his legs. Yeah. Okay. So is there something else that both of them odd. are doing a parody of? Like was is is dinosaurs doing a parody of something else, and then Mission Impossible? Did Mission it Impossible too. was ninety six, so I was pretty darn accurate in my estimation. Okay, there. so you were well yeah. done. How how could they have parodied? How Mission is this Impossible? possible? 
Well, I, I, this is like every heist film has versions of this. I'm sure we but, can go like, back. The grappling drop down? I don't know about the grappling drop. I'm sure there must have been like museum heists happening in films where they were coming down from the ceiling to avoid uh, like laser guards at the, on the floor. That can't have been invented by and dinosaurs, Mission right? Mission Impossible just <laughs> did it in the most critically successful and widely viewed. Yeah. So listeners, if you're familiar with earlier films that had... what? Wait, didn't The Great Muppet Caper do this too? I don't think they did this <sighs> one. I remember they tried to eat through the bars uh, with a jar of hot sauce. <laughs> they said a jar of hot, hot sauce. But there is a sequence where they're like on the roof of the museum. Yeah. Hmm. They don't this do it in an Italian job. <laughs> I, I hope one of our listeners is secretly like the biggest fan of this trope. And please. <laughs> yes, please fill us in, listeners, if you're familiar with heist films with people dropping in from the ceiling to try and steal something. Yeah. We did. Or maybe we it's did a TV it. tropes we that we listener. don't know about. We did have a listener that is an expert on spinning newspaper headlines. That's right. It's, it's true. You guys so called The best out one on was Airplane. It's not present in uh, White Christmas. It, it doesn't yeah. spin. It yeah. just comes up. It just appears. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, listeners, this one's on you. Tell us, <laughs> how is it possible that Mission Impossible comes after dinosaurs and, and yet has the same scene? Uh, yeah. My favorite part was the plunger with the glass cutter around it when he cut the circle. <laughs> <laughs> to hold the glass circle up when it's he lifts it up. so good well and it's the, like i said i love muppets and one of the things i love most about muppets is watching it and thinking how did they do that even more like especially older muppet episodes like now i can always say well they just screen screen someone out like they, they you know they modern yeah. muppet movies will will take people out but like when i'm watching like the muppet movie and I love finding out like behind the scenes of how they got this shot of Kermit singing in the swamp. And you find out that Jim Henson was in the log that Kermit is sitting on and just at the most awkward position possible. And it was Jim Henson with his arm, you know, sticking out of the only part of the log where you don't see anything around him, but it looks like Kermit is sitting all alone on a log singing the rainbow connection. Like that kind of magic or when, uh, there's a bike riding sequence yeah, in, in and like movie. a very well choreographed multiple Muppet bike riding sequence. And it involved all these crazy marionettes, like rigs up above that people were peddling with their hands to get the motions of the, and, uh, of the Muppet Leagues. I love but, that stuff from but Jim Henson even, even that sequence, there's one sequence in it that they keep a secret. About how how, how, how they did it. I think it's like something about like the bike turning mm-hmm. and going around in a circle and then coming out of it. Like, I think we're not going to tell you how yeah. you do that. Um, but the, so much of this this series is still me like watching, like leaning back and like, how are they doing this puppetry? Like it's just astonishing puppetry. It's so good. And the I, I just want to make a nod to the, I mean, the voice acting is great. But the physic, the physical acting is really good. And when you're imagining that that is someone in this giant latex suit or whatever that suit is made out of, like just like, miming yeah. everything. Yeah. <laughs> I just sent you in our little uh, in in Slack. I just sent you a link to that one and a half minute video. Just watch that one and a half minute video, and it's it's Ugh. astounding how well they move in these huge suits. And then the faces are. It's scary how how uh, expressive they are. Yeah, and this is one of those things. Like, I love all filmmaking magic, and I love like the, we're able to make films now completely differently than anything ever before because of CGI. But there is something in the magic that's lost from practical effects where we assume so much is done in computers that some of the how did they do that wonder is lost. Yeah, and this is. Uh, still in that era where it's full of the how did they do that wonder <laughs> like how is this thing existing and i i would imagine it probably like it only had um 14 episodes per season i'm guessing it was still kind of expensive because like i said we had we had uh you know at minimum three people working on the characters you know to be in the suit to work in the face to have voice actors i'm guessing this is kind of an expensive uh production yeah. and which may be why there were only 14 episodes a season it's amazing and I am really glad that we got to talk about it. Because thank you. now something awesome has been added to my life. Yeah, thank you, listener Carl. And uh, my son, who is only two, but because he's two, he loves dinosaurs. He saw me watching this, and he just came and sat next to me. He had no, I mean, I'm sure he wasn't following anything, but he was just saying, dinosaurs? Baby <laughs> my, dinosaur. <laughs> my four-year-old did the exact same thing. Just came and snuggled up. It's, uh, I think the Henson studio has a good track record of making things that can entrance children. Yeah. So thank you again, Carl, for uh, suggesting this and asking us to cover dinosaurs. All right. I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Any final thoughts, Todd? Nope. Great show.
All right. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. If you're a new listener, a note about our back catalog. We switched up the format a bit at episode 13, so our first dozen episodes are a bit meandering in terms of discussion and length. If you enjoyed this episode about dinosaurs, you might want to check out episode number 45 about Everybody Loves Raymond for a discussion of the kind of sitcom we said this was parody. And episode number 81 about Watership Down if you want to have another anthropomorphic tale of environmentalism. Links to things we talked about <laughs> is a, a significantly different tone. Yes, and uh, a happier ending, too. Uh, links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. That's also where you can find a list of all of our shows. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners and feel free to to drop in and tell us about other movies that use the trope of the heist film that maybe mimics in this episode. If you would like to support the show financially, there are a few different ways you can do that. You can buy a topic for us to discuss or just show your appreciation with a monetary donation by clicking on the support link on our homepage or go directly to patreon.com slash protagonist. All supporters on Patreon receive access to our special quick cast, shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers for upcoming films. We've recently released some quick casts on the film The Arrival and the film Rogue One. You may have heard of that last one. You can also go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon to make all of your Amazon purchases. It looks exactly like regular Amazon. Amazon, but we get a little kickback from Amazon when you use that link. Again, protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. And do not forget, listeners, to sign up for a 30-day free trial of Audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Somewhere in the 40s. Uh, it's 45. You know what makes me happy butter. <laughs> <laughs> Number 45. That was an interesting inflection on that. <laughs> as though you were speaking to butter instead of answering the question. You know what makes me happy butter? <laughs> you. <laughs> you make me happy. <laughs>